Our Father, please uh, work in us a mighty work by your Spirit this morning. May you point out to us just how wrong sin is uh, and just how wonderful the Lord Jesus is. I pray that we might be fighting the lie that sin is good, uh, that you might cause us uh, to continue to trust in the one who has saved us. Amen. Well, all my adult life, I have come across my preschool teachers or my kids' church teachers, and the first thing I'll say to them is, I am truly sorry. I am so sorry. Uh, The reason is... Actually, let me take you back to preschool. Now, when I was in preschool, I hated craft, I hated dancing, I hated singing, and I hated sitting down. And so, what what do I do? What what would you do if you were my preschool teachers? They gave me one rule, stay in the preschool. You, you can do anything you like, you've just got to be in the preschool. And so that wasn't good enough for me because all I wanted to do is actually go outside of the preschool. Now, it was a pretty clear rule, though. There was an eight-foot pool fence around the whole of the preschool uh, and a good reason for the fence, which was that there was a major road uh, across from the preschool. That's not a good place for a toddler to just kind of walk into. But... I was engaged in a rebellion because I wanted freedom. And so every day I was at preschool, I tried to climb that fence. And actually my earliest memories, some of my earliest memories are me climbing this fence uh, and and watching the preschool teachers just have a heart attack uh, at the bottom of the fence. But here's the thing. Our passage actually is quite similar to my preschool years. And what we're going to see is that all of humanity, a little bit more serious than climbing a preschool fence, but all of humanity has been engaged in a rebellion against God. Uh, And like preschool, it's not like God is not a good God. My parents were wonderful parents. The problem was me. (laughs) The problem was I didn't want to be in the preschool. Uh, And we're going to see actually why do we sin against God? What's going on when we rebel against our Creator? But let me give you a bit of context. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we've seen, haven't we, just how beautiful the world that God made is. That God is the creator and he makes Adam and Eve in a paradise. And he gives them all kinds of fruit to eat from. He walks in the cool of the day with his people. The beautiful picture of paradise. That is the picture of God we get in Genesis so far, that God is a good God, he he loves his people. But remember, if you're with us in chapter 2, there's one command of God, isn't there? That you can have all kinds of trees, but you may not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of that, you will die. And in order to understand our passage this morning, we've actually got to come back and see the significance of that tree. See, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was was kind of like a symbol of God's authority, that God is God and Adam and Eve were not. And so to eat of that tree is for Adam and Eve to say, actually, no, I want to be God. I want to determine good and evil for myself instead of God. 
That, that's the significance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a clear marker that God is God and Adam and Eve are not. But we get this picture, don't we, of a great God, a loving God who, who, who gives generously. But along comes an opposing view of God. We're going to see our first point, the lie. And it's a lie that comes from Satan. Here's his lie. God doesn't want your good. He's holding back from you. Pick it up in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now the serpent here we know from Revelation 12 is Satan himself. The great deceiver come to tempt Eve and he says to her, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Now Satan knows what God said but he's putting the question out there. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Do you see how Satan's twisted God's words? God said they are profoundly free to eat from any tree except that one because it's going to kill you. And Satan says, he's putting a doubt in Eve's mind. Well, God did say you can't eat from that tree. What if God's holding back from you? What, what else is God holding back? Is he really good? Have a look at Eve's response. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, a couple of things to notice here. Eve gets it basically right initially, doesn't she? We actually can eat from the fruit in the garden, but she's already lost the profound goodness of God, that God said, you are free. And he gives them the tree of life. She started to believe the lie of Satan. What if God's holding back? Eve has started to believe that lie. Verse 3, God did say that you must not eat from the tree, uh, from the, the, the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. God didn't say you can't touch it. Eve, you can touch it. You and Adam can pick it and play soccer with it. You can play the first game of soccer. You just can't eat it. See how Eve started to add strictness to God's word. Now, I reckon this is the birth of religion right here because ever since Eve, man-made religion has started to add strictness to God's word. That God gives a command and then religion says, actually, we're going we're gonna to up that. We're going to make the barrier even higher so we make sure we're going to follow God's rules. In the last couple of weeks, it's come out that uh, Joshua Harris, uh, who's a famous pastor in, in America, he he's, uh, no longer calls himself a Christian. But you might remember, he, he wrote the, the famous book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, early 2000s. And at the heart of that book, I think, illustrates religion pretty well, which is that God says no sex outside of marriage, 
We know his rules for that. But the logic of I kiss dating goodbye is actually to say, well, we're going to take that a step further. You can't even hold hands because that's going to lead to sex. Watch out when you're in the same room as someone alone. The Pharisees did this as well, didn't they? The Pharisees in the time of Jesus started to add things to God's word. Well, what's Satan's reply? Verse 4. He goes straight at God's word. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's a flat-out denial of what God said, isn't it? God said, you will certainly die. Satan says, you will not certainly die. His lie is that judgment isn't coming. God's not going to follow through. But the best lies have a grain of truth in them, don't they? They're kind of a half-truth. Here are some of Satan's half-truths. Their eyes will be opened. That's true. We're going to see that next week. Verse 7. Their eyes are open, but they understand not enlightenment, but shame. And it's a great sadness that the temptation for sin, for Eve, one of them is that she will be like God. Because she is already like God. We saw a couple of weeks ago, she is made in God's image. She is in his likeness. But Eve wants to be like God in the sense that she will be the determiner of her good and evil. That is the lie. Now, I wonder, what is your view of God? See how there's two opposing views here, aren't there? That God is good, he's the creator, how he reveals himself in his word. But there's an opposing view, isn't there? That God actually, maybe he's not for your good. He's holding back. So how do you see him? Because your view of God will start to shape your attitude to sin. So if you see God as as the creator, he's good, he's done everything for you, for your good, you'll start to say, actually, sin makes sense, doesn't it? Because uh, sin is God's way of saying there is right and wrong. But if you start to believe that lie, that God isn't for your good, that he's holding back, then it's very easy to view sin as not that bad, isn't it? Because actually God's the one putting restrictions in and they're not fair. And he's not letting me experience myself. God's the one in the wrong there. He's holding back from me. You see how, as we decide how are we going to view God, that really matters for our attitude to sin. That's something we've got to keep coming back to. How do you view God? And it's possible to do all the right things at church, to go to to church, to read the Bible, be part of a growth group, but to have the attitude of Eve, to have a religious view of God, to add strictness, that you've started to believe the lie of Satan, that God is maybe not for your good. Now, that lie of Satan is a powerful lie, isn't it? It is so easy. If you're anything like me, it's easy to get sucked in. think, actually, God isn't for your good. Now, that lie comes externally to Adam and Eve. But there's something going on in their hearts. See, it's not like Satan made them do it. 
There's something going on inside. What's going on in Eve's heart? Well, Eve has started to believe the lie that God isn't good. We've seen that already. And that lie leads to sin and rebellion. See, Eve's sin comes from a desire to rule herself instead of having God as her ruler, to put herself in God's place. Have a look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see Eve's justification for sin looks really good. It's good for food. It pleases my eye. Now that's a pretty weak justification, isn't it? Particularly when you remember Genesis 2 verse 9, God made all kinds of trees that were good for food and pleasing to the eye. It's not a unique quality of this tree. But she started to dress up this justification to to, to let her sin, to make it not so bad. Because at its heart, when she takes and eats, in her heart she wants to be the determiner of good and evil. She wants to be in the place of God. What's Eve's sin? She disobeys God's command. God says, do not eat, and she eats. Now, the the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not this magical disease that when they eat it, then suddenly the world's plunged into darkness. It's actually Eve's act of eating it in rebellion to God. Sin is an attitude that started in her heart. I want to choose. I want to rule. What about Adam's heart? Actually, where is Adam in the story? Do you notice in verse 6? Eve gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam's been with her the whole time. What's he doing? He's just standing there, silent. When a snake has a conversation with his wife about eating the fruit that will kill her. What's he doing? He was the one who was given the command from God Do not eat from the tree. He is the one responsible for leading his wife and he just stands there doing nothing. He's totally deserted his responsibility here. Now, Adam knows what he's doing. We don't know the details. We don't know why, whether he wants to please his wife. We don't know what's going on in his heart, but the same thing is true as Eve, isn't it? That Adam, like Eve, wanted to be in the place of God. They wanted to be God over their lives. Now, recently I watched The Lion King, not not the new one. That's kind of, uh, I've heard it's not very good. Uh, But there's a great scene in The Lion King, the classic old version, where Scar is on the cliff with Mufasa. Picture there. You guys remember this scene? Great movie, isn't it? Where, where, Where Mufasa saves Simba and he's on the cliff. Uh, and Scar latches on. And does anyone remember what he says as he, as he casts Mufasa down? He says, long live the king. Scar says, long live the king, as he hurls Mufasa the king off the cliff. And it struck me as I was watching it that that's kind of what's going on in our hearts, isn't it, when we sin? We're saying to God, Long live the king as we hurl him off 
his rightful rule over our lives because we want to be king. I am in control of my life. Now, what about your heart? See, that heart problem in Adam and Eve is the same in us, isn't it? That our desire is to be God, to rule over our own life, to do things our way. Now, if you were to look in my heart, you would find, very unpleasantly, a big, fat slice of what's wrong with the world. (laughs) That's in my heart. There are things I've done that I'm totally ashamed of. And I've done them in the name of being ruler of my life. Of making myself king. Instead of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that the more I start to believe the lie that God isn't for my good, the easier it is for me to sin. Think about it. If if I was totally on board with God being a good creator who's made everything right and, and his way is best, why would I sin? But my heart so easily believes that lie. And I justify it. It's not that bad. Well, God, I know your way is best most of the time, but right now it's pretty inconvenient. Right now, what's best for me is what I want. You know when you tell a lie and you just think, oh man, it's going to cost me big time if I tell the truth here. It's better for me. No one will know. Or do you ever find yourself gossiping about someone or talking behind someone's back and you start to justify it in your mind? I'll, just, I'll feel better if I let it out. I'm actually just going to be cranky if I hold it in. So it's actually, I have to do this. Kind of dress sin up as, as counselling. We're very good at justifying our sin. Think about our cultural narratives. It, it isn't hurting anyone. How can it be wrong? It's the only time I feel like myself. It feels good. It must be okay. It looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. I wonder, where do you find sin in your life? What is it for you? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it how you treat other people? It's often the same process, isn't it? We've bought into that lie of Satan. We justify our sin. But really, what's going on is we want to be God of our life. We want to put ourselves in his place. We're saying to ourselves, long live the king. Now, what's the fruit? What's the result of their sin? Well, the first thing to note is this isn't a harmless rebellion. See, sin puts us as God's enemies. We are culpable. We are responsible for our sin. And the Bible says there are consequences. We're going to see that next week particularly. But let me just touch on the lie of Satan is that you will not certainly die. But it is a lie. The Bible says that the consequence, the penalty for sin is death. Satan's lies lead only to pain. Now, we see that in Adam and Eve. We're going to see that next week. They're barred from the tree of life. They're barred from the garden and and they die. But the consequence of death on view here is bigger. So Hebrews 9, 27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It's talking about a spiritual death. 
And the Bible calls hell the second death. And hell is such a severe punishment because you matter so much to God. You are made in his image. God takes us so seriously because we've actually taken him off the throne of our lives and he's the God of the universe, which means we need a saviour, don't we? So let's see our saviour. As Jesus comes to earth, he's faced with the same lie of Satan. He's in the wilderness and, and Satan tricks him and twists he tries to, he doesn't trick Jesus, he tries to trick him and he speaks God's words and twists them and, and tries to get Jesus to sin. Jesus faces temptation. He's gone 40 days without food. He's hungry. If I go one day without food, I'm gone. But Jesus is in this moment of temptation and yet he trusts in God. He trusts in God's word. He trusts his Father. And, you know, the second moment of Jesus' temptation we see in the Bible, profound moment, is the night before he dies. In another garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he kneels down and prays, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, and yet he trusts in his Father, And he loves us profoundly. That's what's going on in Jesus' heart. He trusts his Father and he loves us, even to the point of going to the cross. Even though we've told him to get stuffed. So what's the fruit? What's the result of the cross? Well, remember that the the essence of our sin is us putting ourselves in the place only God deserves to be. But as John Stott says, the essence of salvation is God putting himself where only we deserve to be. As Jesus goes to the cross, he goes where only we deserve, to to take the judgment that we deserved on himself, to die the death that we deserved. And as he dies, he pays that punishment fully for our sin. And his death means that if we trust in him, we have total forgiveness. The penalty is gone. And on the cross, the great lie of Satan has been silenced. Satan says, God is not for your good. He's holding back. But what has God held back? Even the death of his son. God loves us. He hasn't held anything back and he is totally for your good. We see that so clearly. Do you see how that transforms our attitude to sin? God loves you. He is for you. Why would we take any pleasure? in rebelling against God. So two things. Will you trust him? Now, if if you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, it'd be a great time to do that. He is worthy of our trust. To say to God, I'm sorry that I've put myself in your place. Please forgive me and help me to live with Jesus as my king. We all this morning, don't we? We need to keep trusting in Jesus. Keep following him. And secondly, we need to imitate him. So Jesus gives us a great model to live by, doesn't he? He knows what it's like to, to face temptation. Our God knows what it's like to feel the pull to sin. And yet Jesus didn't. 
We're called to be like him and to say to God, not my will, but yours be done. And we will continue to sin, won't we? We will continue to struggle. But remember, your sins have been paid for. There is no judgment to come if you're a follower of Jesus. And we will eat of the tree of life in the new creation, the eternal city, not because of my obedience, not because of yours, because of nothing we've done, but because of the obedience of Jesus our Saviour who died for us. How about I pray?